G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Baber and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Today on the show we are taking a tour of the ancient Near East and trying to figure out what these ancient authors meant when they talked about creation. I'm here with TJ Stedman, author of Answers to Giant Questions and Bible nerd extraordinaire. G'day Tim. G'day Chris, thanks for hosting the show with me. We'll be going from Egypt to Akkad, from Babylon to Canaan. But before we get into that, a little housekeeping. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. This podcast is supplementary to the book, so there's no substitute for the real thing. I'm not going to be reading the book on air, so make sure you get a copy. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is better and really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content in answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Tim wants to hear your giant questions because he has giant answers to give you. So if you do have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you've found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell Tim or about the world at large, this is how you do it. Head to the website giantanswers.com where you can get the blog, give feedback, connect through the socials, ask questions and get answers. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that right now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. Speaking of episodes, let's get this very one underway. It's time for you to get answers to giant questions. Subscribe. Today we're going to take a super fast tour of creation stories in the ancient Near East and see how they define creation very differently to the way we in evangelical Christian circles might. This is quite a tour. Egypt, Akkad, Babylon, and Canaan are the others. How do you find this stuff? Yeah, there's so much more to discover once you start reading ancient texts, but I settled on these as representative of what you find generally so this should help us on our quest to start thinking like a person living in the ancient near east and get us out of our modern mindset so that we can hear the biblical authors talking to us when we read the bible you can get translations online easily enough let's have a look at our first one so this is the egyptian creation text called papyrus in singer now there are lots of creation stories uh, coming out of Egypt, this is just one, um, but there are particular reasons why I wanted to show you this one. It's named after the first modern person on record who had possession of it. Uh, as the title implies, it is a papyrus, which means it's quite late because we didn't see that uh, in the very earliest manuscripts, which of course were uh, pressed into clay tablets. Uh, the document does date roughly to the time of Christ, but it's recording an earlier tradition. So. The material in it dates from an earlier time. We have a later copy. It's what they call a wisdom text, and it is chiefly concerned with the function of the created things as far as human utility is concerned. Um, so creation in this text is the assignment of function 
to material. That's how they define creation. Uh, incidentally, wisdom texts in the Bible, of course, uh, also have creation traditions. You can find creation in Proverbs chapter 8. So uh, that's not an unusual thing to find a wisdom literature text that deals with creation. So I'm going to read to you now part of the Egyptian text, Papyrus in Singer. He created light and darkness, in which is every creature. He created the earth, begetting millions, swallowing them up and begetting again. He created day, month and year through the commands of the Lord of Command. He created summer and winter through the rising and setting of Sothis. He created food before those who were alive, the wonder of the fields. He created the constellation of those that are in the sky so that those on earth should learn them. He created sweet water in it, which all of the lands desire. He created the breath in the egg, though there is no access to it. He created birth in every womb from the semen which they receive. He created sinews and bones out of the same semen. He created going and coming in the whole earth through the trembling of the ground. He created sleep to end weariness, waking for looking after food. He created remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. He created the dream to show the way to the dreamer in his blindness. He created life and death before him for the torment of the impious man. He created wealth for truthfulness, poverty for falsehood. He created work for the stupid man, food for the common man. He created the succession of generations so as to make them live. Now that's an interesting text and one of the things that you notice is that most of these things recorded there have a purpose. And it's in that framework that we're supposed to understand what's being explained here. So, as an example, uh, remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. There, there is a purpose for these things to be created and it is in the purpose that the essence of being is defined. So, without purpose, these things don't exist. It's what they call a functional ontology or existence. The, the definition of their existence is defined by what these things are for. Now our second one comes from Akkad and it is the famous epic of Atrahasis. Now, obviously I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's very long, um, but I'll give you an excerpt from the first tablet. Now, in this one, this is a bit different. There seems to be no interest in material creation in this one. The, the gods are brought into being and the cosmos is just assumed to, to be there. Creation is bringing order in the cosmos. So in this text, it's not about what's there. It's about having it functioning in a system, having things work together. Everything has to be in its right place. That's what creation is defined as in this text. So the gods rebel against the high gods because they don't want to do the work of creation. And man is created to do the work of the gods and thus the responsibility of creation is passed to them. Bringing order to the world is an ongoing effort for all mankind according to this text. So from tablet one. When the gods instead of man did the work 
bore the loads. The God's load was too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. The great Anunnaki made the Ijiji carry the workload sevenfold. Anu, their father, was king, their counsellor, warrior Elil. Their chamberlain was Ninurta, their canal controller, Enuji. They took the box of lots, cast the lots. The gods made the division. Anu went up to the sky, and Elil took the earth for his people. The bolt which bars the sea was assigned to far-sided Enki. When Anu had gone up to the sky, and the gods of the Apsu had gone below, the Anunnaki of the sky made the Ijiji bear the workload. The gods had to dig out canals, had to clear channels, the lifelines of the land. The Ijiji had to dig out canals, had to clear channels, the lifelines of the land. The gods dug out the Tigris riverbed, and then dug out the Euphrates. From that point the text becomes a bit fragmentary, but we get the idea that what the gods are doing is establishing the structure of the world by doing earthworks. They dig in the deep, they set up the uh, structures of the, the earth, the, the mountains, and they uh, raise the heavens, they do all this stuff. And uh, later they assign mankind to, uh, to take over because the gods uh, rebel and leave mankind to do the work. So throughout that passage, all the material of the earth is already there and they kind of have to move it around and create order by setting things right. They have to dig out riverbeds, the, the water doesn't flow without them. They've got to uh, put the mountains in their place. This is the work of creation according to the Akkadians. And we're going to see uh, a little difference here when we get to Babylon. In the Babylonian creation story, uh, the famous Enuma Elish, um, this, of course, is a variant of an earlier tradition which has ties to the Akkadian. Um, the earliest we can attribute this is something like 1900 BC, um, to as late as 1250 BC and certainly in the uh, in the time that Israel had their interactions with Babylon this story was fairly well cemented in, in the form that we have here. Now creation begins as a conflict legitimizing the kingship of Marduk as head of the pantheon. After the conflict, order is established. Thus, creation is the initial action of kingship. And then the king goes on to build temples as part of the created cosmos. So I'm going to read you some excerpts here from tablets 4 and 5 of Enuma Elish. Uh, starting from tablet 4 and line 129. Bell placed his feet on the lower parts of Tiamat and with his merciless club smashed her skull. He severed her arteries and let the north wind bear up her blood to give the news. 
His father saw it and were glad and exulted. They brought gifts and presents to him. Bell rested, surveying the corpse, in order to divide the lump by a clever scheme. He split her into two like a dried fish. One half of her he set up and stretched out as the heavens. He stretched the skin and appointed a watch, with the instruction not to let her waters escape. He crossed over the heavens, surveyed the celestial parts, and adjusted them to match the Apsu, Nadimid's abode. Bell measured the shape of the Apsu and set up Ishara, a replica of Ishkala. In Ishkala, Ishara which he had built and the heavens, he settled their shrines, Anu, Enlil, and Ea. So in that excerpt we have uh, Bel, which is one of the names of Marduk, uh, portrayed as the victor of a fight with the Chaos Dragon, the the uh, the monster, the goddess Tiamat. In this text, not depicted so much as a dragon, but that comes into other traditions, so it's kind of understood when you read it. Although the description as a dragon doesn't necessarily come out uh, in this text. Uh, moving on to Tablet 5. He fashioned heavenly stations for the great gods and set up constellations, the patterns of the stars. He appointed the year, marked off divisions, and set up three stars, each for the twelve months. Uh, moving further down in the text. From her two eyes, he let the Euphrates and Tigris flow. He blocked her nostrils. He heaped up the distant mountains on her breasts. He bored wells to channel the springs. He twisted her tail and wove it into the Durmar. He set up her crotch, it wedged up the heavens. Thus the half of her he stretched out and made it as firm as the earth. After he had finished his work inside Tiamat, he spread his net and let it right out. As he surveyed the heavens and the earth. So what we find in this section of the text is some explanations for how the heavenly bodies took their form, how the earth was placed in, into shape. There's a lot of uh, attention paid to the, uh, the stars in the sky and that sort of thing and how they were put there and what they mean. And you'll note that there's uh, attention paid to uh, a sense of calendar, this idea that you could look at the stars and you could work out what time of year it was and that sort of thing. So showing that there's a purpose for uh, the, the stars in the sky being where they are and carrying uh, meaning in that respect. Now, moving on, we'll have a look at the Bale cycle. Now this one, most people are going to tell you that's not a creation text, it's just a, a, a myth about the, uh, the ascension of, of Baal among the gods, um, but it's through paying attention to the different genres that we find uh, within the ancient literature that we can see the elements of creation that we've already looked at coming through with clarity. So when we read the Baal cycle, just because we don't see the word creation coming through in the text and we don't have this idea of forming the physical land and the stars in the sky and all that sort of thing, that doesn't rule it out from being a kind of creation text in its own right. 
So this first excerpt, and I've got, there's got a few of them. This is a pretty big, uh, epic piece of writing. The first one's going to show us some of that conflict and you know, kingship stuff that we saw in Babylon. Kothar brings down a second club and proclaims his name. Thy name, even thine, is Amur. Amur, drive Yam, drive Yam from his throne. Nahar, from his seat of sovereignty. Thou shalt swoop from the hands of Baal like an eagle from his fingers. Strike the head of Prince Yam, twixt the eyes of Judge Nahar. Let Yam sink and fall to the earth. And the club swoops from the hands of Baal like an eagle from his fingers. It strikes the head of Prince Yam, twixt the eyes of Judge Nahar. Yam sinks, falls to the earth. His joints fail, his frame collapses. Baal drags and poises Yam, destroys Judge Nahar. By name, Astarte rebukes. Shame, O Alien Baal, shame, O Rider of the Clouds, for Prince Yam was our captive, for Judge River was our captive. And there went out Baal, verily ashamed is Alian Baal, and Prince Yam is indeed dead. So let Baal reign. So in this text we find that Baal, with the help of uh, Kothar, the craftsman god, has used weapons to destroy uh, Prince Yam, uh, also known in this text as Judge Nahar. There's these water connections, you know, Nahar means river and Yam means sea. So we're talking about the waters of chaos, right? Again, this, there's, there's this chaos motif which we find um, in, in Babylon and, and uh, in, in other texts. So, uh, yeah, Baal comes out victorious and at the end of this section he is proclaimed um, as reigning over the gods. We get into another excerpt from the same text. Uh, which talks about uh, Baal setting up his temple. So this is, again, another uh, critical part of the uh, creation uh, mythology and the way that creation is spoken of in the ancient world. We're going to see how Baal inaugurates his temple. Baal was now king of the gods, lord of the mountain of Siphon. But Baal had no palace like the other gods. Of cedars his house is to be built, of bricks is his palace to be erected. He goes to Lebanon and its trees, to Syria and the choicest of its cedars. Lo, Lebanon and its trees, Syria and its cedars. Fire is set on the house, flame on the palace. Behold, a day and a second the fire eats into the house, the flame into the palace. A fifth, a sixth day, the fire eats into the house, the flame in the midst of the palace. Behold, on the seventh day, the fire departs from the house, the flame from the palace. Silver turns from blocks, gold is turned from bricks. Alian Baal rejoices. My house have I built of silver, my palace of gold have I made. His house Baal prepares. Hadad prepares the housewarming of his palace. He slaughters great and small cattle. He fells oxen and ram fatlings, yielding calves, little lambs and kids. He called his brothers into his house, his kinsmen into the midst of his palace. He called the seventy sons of Asherah. He caused the sheep gods to drink wine. He caused the ewe goddesses to drink wine. 
He causes the bull gods to drink wine. He causes the cow goddesses to drink wine. He causes the throne gods to drink wine. He causes the chair goddesses to drink wine. Everyone's drinking wine here. He causes the jar gods to drink wine. He causes the jug goddesses to drink wine. Until the gods had eaten and drunk and the sucklings quaffed with a keen knife, a slice of fatling, they drink wine from a goblet, from a cup of gold, the blood of vines. Lord Bale went on to take possession of many earthly cities. Sixty-six, seventy-seven towns he took. Eighty, ninety was the total number of cities that fell to the possession of mighty Hadad. Thus Bale returned to his home as lord of all the world. So in this text we have this construction of a temple, a dedication that takes place in six days with a seventh day of feasting and rejoicing and drinking and more drinking and drinking and more drinking and uh, then we talk about the dominion here and the the poetic side of these things is apparent when you see these uh, numbers you know, 66, 77, 80, 90 it's uh, poetic expressions using numbers to sort of intensify the, the meaning here you know so we're not making counting mistakes. It's about uh, expressing dominion uh, using numbers as words. So uh, anyway, why read all these ancient texts from Israel's pagan neighbours? Well, if you think I'm going to take the side of higher criticism here and start talking about Israel stealing pagan mythology and adapting it, you're on the wrong track. Uh, this has been an exercise in comprehension. If you were paying attention to these texts, you should have noticed that their ideas about what exactly constitutes creation are wildly at odds with our own ideas in this post-Enlightenment age. With that in mind, I'm asking listeners to read or listen to the biblical creation stories again. We've come to the end of this segment, but as we continue in subsequent episodes of the podcast... We're going to find a definition of creation that agrees with what the Bible is actually telling us, and that is how we'll get started in thinking like an ancient Israelite and getting a grip on what the Bible actually means. Interesting stuff, as always. And some listeners might be thinking that it's not right to use the myths of the pagans to interpret what the Bible is saying. Doesn't that lead to bad theology? What have you got to say, Tim? Well, it's true that we need to exercise caution when we read ancient texts from other nations. But for the purposes of what we're doing here, it's actually really helpful. From the perspective of today, we find that there's no contemporary literature that's anything like the Bible, because it's an ancient text. Not only is it really old, but it comes from a place where most of us have never been, and it was written in languages that most of us don't know. It was written using literary styles and genres that differ from modern writing. So the way to overcome those barriers is to compare scripture to other literature from the same general context. Similar culture, dating, genre, language groups, etc. When we do that, we're able to see more clearly how ancient writers communicated truth. And that enables us to discern what truth claims are actually being made. We're always going to fall back on scripture as absolute truth being the inspired word of God. But we have to remember that it's not our traditional understanding of the text that is inspired. It's the truth that God communicated to the world through human authors who wrote intelligently and purposefully to convey it. 
We should probably remember, though, that in the never-ending story, when Bastion recreates Fantasia after the nothing destroys it all, even then he has to start with a single grain of sand. Never-ending story is such a great film. So we have a question from an anonymous survey responder who asks What has happened to the skeletal remains of giants? Why has the truth been covered up? Hmm, good question. Good question. I do get this one a lot too. Well, I think it's helpful first to get an idea of the scale of this issue. What kind of population should we reasonably expect? to have found in the region described in the biblical text. I would suggest that the ancient Near East in the antediluvian period probably supported many hundreds of thousands of individuals until the population began to deplete resources and turn in on itself. And that's the situation we have at the time of Noah. So if there were so many hundreds of thousands of people in that area at that time. Why aren't we finding remains? Well, the first way to tackle that, I guess, is to ask what things can happen to remains that would deplete the amount discoverable in the modern age? I mean, there's got to be a reason why we don't find every single creature that ever died laying in the surface of the earth. And uh, I've come up with a little list of factors that we've got to take in. Um, I wasn't trying to be a typical uh, evangelical preacher, but I've got five C's. And the first is catastrophe. Okay, so that's warfare, flood, you know, natural disasters and large-scale conflicts and uh, acts of God and that kind of thing. Okay, so obviously the, the, the... First one that comes to mind is the flood of Noah. All right, so, you know, Genesis 6 to 8 makes it clear that, of course, there was a massive cataclysm. Uh, many thousands of people were wiped out. And it's a flood. It's, it's not some orderly sort of thing where everything was just neatly and tidily laid down. So with the chaotic nature of flooding, and if anyone's experienced flooding, you know that Stuff that you put down in one place can be found miles away later on if it's ever found at all. And uh, so that's going to have a massive impact on the amount of uh, bodily remains that we can expect to find in such an area. Uh, I would imagine a lot of uh, remains would have just simply been washed out to sea and, and that kind of thing. So that's probably the biggest factor. Okay, so after catastrophe, we have culture okay and uh, in this we got things like the way that people lived and one of those big factors was migration you know uh, it was common in biblical times for people to migrate and they would take with them the bones of their ancestors that means that once again 
we're going to find that bones are not put down in the same place where you would expect to find them. Uh, as an example in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, so he died in Egypt. Uh, he was put in a coffin in Egypt, but his bones didn't stay there. They took his bones to Canaan. Okay, so there's one example of how uh, bodily remains don't necessarily stay put. Exodus 13 uh, and verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here again. So that's uh, another reference to the same event. There you go. I mean, with two attestations of the same thing, uh, we're certainly getting a confirmation that this practice was done. All right. Um, and culturally speaking, there are other reasons why uh, bodily remains might not um, be found where we expect to find them or may not be found at all. And uh, particularly when it comes to rituals around uh, the dead and their ongoing uh, participation in family life. Now, you might be scratching your head at that remark, but uh, uh, particularly in the Transjordan area and throughout Canaan, we had uh, the Amorite populations. They had uh, a lot of... Uh, religious practice around the uh, veneration of the dead ancestors. They erected funerary dolmens, you know, those big structures that uh, kind of look like a, a table made out of two upright slabs of uh, stone with a third one across the top. Uh, kind of look like the symbol for pi. And they stand up in the uh, wilderness all over the Transjordan to this day. Uh, those structures, uh, funerary monuments, so they were built. What, what they do is they sort of create a doorway, right? Because there's that passage through the middle uh, between the two standing stones and the, and the top stone uh, across between them. Sort of provides a doorway. And the idea was uh, that the, the dead person be passed through that doorway uh, into the afterlife. They would then put the remains of the dead person up on the top and leave it there to be defleshed. And that's the nice way of saying that uh, they left them there until the birds and beasts came and picked all the meat off the bones. After that, they would keep all the bits that were left, if anything, and that would be transported back to the family home where they would bury them uh, under the floor. And uh, they would make a special provision uh, to be able to participate in family meals with the dead. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? What they did was they put a special tube down into the ground. And uh, so that would stick up uh, out of the floor in the house. And uh, every so often, um, I believe it was around uh, New Moon, they would have a special family ritual. The family will get together they conduct uh, something like a seance and they uh, invite 
their, their dead relatives to participate in a meal with them. And they've got this tube sticking up there through which they would pour uh, offerings of drinks. And they would have a little uh, statue, a little idol uh, set up in, in the home and they would uh, present it with food and that sort of thing. And that's how they uh, honoured their dead relatives by uh, inviting them to uh, participate in a meal with them. Now, uh, these libations or the, the drinks that they would uh, offer their dead relatives are usually uh, something like beer or that sort of thing. So, you know, a fermented drink goes down into a hole containing bodily remains uh, over and over and over again. You can imagine uh, over the course of time, there's not going to be too much left under the ground there. Uh, so again, uh, remains from this period are really, really scarce. Uh, so these are just some of the considerations that we've got to factor in when we ask, you know, why aren't there more uh, remains from this time period? Moving on to another, I suppose this is an aspect of culture as well, but I'm going to give it special treatment, and that is cannibalism. So uh, if you're familiar with the book of First Enoch, it actually says that these uh, giants have become so ravenous, they uh, depleted the natural resources around them, they turned on mankind and started eating them, and they even ate one another. So, again, this is another reason why we're not going to find as many remains as we might expect. You know, I had a bit of a laugh because someone reminded me the other day of that uh, creepy video with the little kid who says chicken nuggets is like my family. And I hadn't really thought about cannibalism in that context before, but uh, I can't get it out of my head now. And I don't know if I'm going to watch that video again. Anyway, uh, let's move on. <laughs> Our fourth C is carrion. Okay, so I've mentioned before that birds and other animals may eat human remains. There are no shortage of creatures that will do that in the, uh, in the Middle East. Um, we've got all sorts of things like jackals and hyenas and, of course, vultures, eagles, falcons, you know, many other um, birds and beasts of prey. They're certainly not afraid to, uh, to eat human remains and they will eat the bones. So that's a major factor as to why we're not finding bones around the place. We sort of assume that, uh, that scavengers will just eat the flesh and leave the bones, but that's not always the case there are animals that will just gnaw on a skeleton until it's gone. So that's another factor. You know, those are things that have been happening for centuries. One of the more recent things that's really made a big impact, and I mean, it's always been going on, it's just accelerated pace now, and that's construction, okay? So the progress of civilization over time, you know, uh, things get built and they fall into decay and ruin, and then they get destroyed and then they get flattened and something else gets built on top. And that happens over and over and over. And uh, when you look at these ancient sites, you'll often find that the excavations being done to uncover ancient cities are done on hills because the land has just been built up over and over and over on top of ancient remains. And so we end up with these big hills. So the destruction of the natural landscape as it was is inevitable and that means that anything 
uh, within that uh, geological strata is going to be lost to us uh, if people aren't careful. I know they make a big fuss in the, um, you know, particularly in the Holy Land now, checking everything carefully to make sure that they're not digging up something sacred by accident. And uh, many of the greatest discoveries of recent times have come about as a result of, you know, uh, we were going to put a road down and then, lo and behold, we discovered an ancient palace and all this kind of thing. So, yeah, that's um, just another one of those factors that uh, comes into play when answering that question of why don't we find ancient remains uh, anymore? This this idea of a, a cover-up is an interesting one. You know, um, the the original uh, question, you know, why was why has the truth been covered up? Well, uh, I'm not saying there hasn't been a cover-up because I don't know that there has, but it wouldn't take much to hide a small handful of remains if any have been found. And some probably just hiding in plain sight. You know, while we... Uh, well, I've been reading about the excavation at Tel Es Safi, which is the biblical city of Gath. Uh, I noticed that when a spokesperson for the dig was asked about whether they'd found giant remains, he said they'd found no evidence of remains taller than an average NBA center. Now, I, I did reference that article in my blog. Uh, so, so I looked it up. An average NBA center stands at six foot nine. In an era when the average Israelite male measured five foot three. And then we consider the textual evidence. According to the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Goliath stood at six foot nine. So the giants did exist, and they are being found. But our modern standards simply don't recognize them for what they are. Part of that is forgetting that your average NBA center walking around in ancient Palestine would have been an exceptional phenomenon, not a relatively common sight as it is today. Another part is the mistaken belief that if we actually found remains in conjunction with concrete evidence that the specimen in question was of the Nephilim or Raphaim, etc., uh, we seem to think that they ought to be as tall as cedar trees or miles high due to over-literalization of source texts. The fact is, you're not going to find Jack and the Beanstalk scale giant remains. And it's that kind of misinformation that provides the real cover-up. While people keep posting fake images on YouTube, quoting sensationalist era newspaper clippings from the turn of the 20th century in America, and misrepresenting scripture to support their fantasies, others are out there in the dirt digging up remains of people over a foot taller than the average human of that day and saying that since they aren't 16 feet tall, they don't count as giant remains. So hopefully that gives a little perspective on the situation with the remains of giants. You can decide for yourself whether there really is a cover-up, if you can figure out who exactly is covering what. Let's move on to warfare, this particularly giant warfare. So the next question is, what about indigenous cultures all over the world today? Should we consider their stories differently 
in light of what we've just been talking about? Hmm. Yeah, well, it's a great question. I've been wanting to tackle issues of spiritual warfare on this show and basically what I want to talk about here is the way that we interact with one another as a form of sort of de-escalating the spiritual war because sometimes we find ourselves at war with our brothers where there really ought to be no conflict or or if there is any kind of spiritual battle we need to be making sure that we're taking on the spirits and not the image bearers of God part of that is understanding different cultures and where they're coming from now we just had a look at the creation stories of some ancient cultures and you might have noticed the parallels with indigenous culture in your own area wherever you are maybe there's a clash between that indigenous culture with its ancient roots and the modern culture of today where you are even if you are indigenous I'm going to suggest that winning the spiritual war in your region is not going to happen by applying the modern approach to indigenous cultures and expecting people to be okay with it. Consider that the supernatural worldview of ancient Israel is still going to be closer to indigenous culture than the scientific approach of the 18th to 21st centuries. So much has been lost since the materialism, naturalism and imperialism of society we have in the West took over. Take the time to hear the stories of indigenous people and to identify how the unseen powers of the world are at play in their lives. Don't run away with your own story and what you want to say. You never know, it might even help you in your own journey. And somewhere on that road, you may find an invitation to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that makes sense to your audience. Be patient and sensitive because a lot of damage has been done in the past by people using the gospel to build empires. For some, making disciples really means making everyone conform to my personal expectations of society. We're not called to be like that. If God did not change Israel's culture when he invited them to be his kingdom of priests, we shouldn't either. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. If you liked what you heard today, and I'm sure you did, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Don't forget, if you haven't got the book yet, you can head over to Amazon and grab a copy and paperback kindle follow the link to giantanswers.com read the blog and catch us on the socials don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get some great answers we'll see you next time until then stay safe and god bless